Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we welcome you. Thank you for being here. You being here encourages us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Do keep in mind that next Sunday we'll begin our financial seminar where we look at stewardship based on godly principles. The actual teaching in that seminar will begin in the Bible class time, and all of the teenagers and adults will gather here in Sunday morning in this auditorium. And that class will be about 55 minutes long. So second service next Sunday will begin probably 5 to 10 minutes later than normal. And then we'll continue this theme throughout Sunday evening and then Monday evening from 6.30 till 9. There will be child care available uh, with activities and studies and etc. on Monday evening uh, for children 12 years old and under. Be sure and be inviting your friends, your family members, neighbors, co-workers. There are postcards out in the foyer at various locations of the foyer. Uh, perhaps there might be extra copies of House to House around that, that you could get and, and give those on the back page. They'll be mailed to all of the 37122. Uh, should receive them either Saturday or Monday or Tuesday. And so all of your neighbors, if they're in that zip code, they're going to have seen that in their mail be sure that you do your part. Let's be prayerful. Let's give invitations. And let's make sure that we're here to learn and to be reminded what God says of this important topic. It truly is a blessing when we follow God's way in every area of our life, including the area of stewardship. We are excited to have the uh, announcement made this morning that Jonathan Pettis will be coming to work with us. Be praying for Jonathan and Betsy and for their little newborn. Uh, be sure and be praying for them, be praying for us, and be praying for Lebanon Road. We look forward to the way God has blessed us in so many ways. We look forward to seeing how this blessing will be lived out in the life of this congregation. God is good, and let's make sure that we're good stewards with everything God gives us. A couple of preachers were outside the road. One was holding up a sign, waving it at the cars. The end is near. The other was pounding a large sign in the ground. And that sign said, you should turn back before it's too late. Well, one particular car came, just as a few others had done that day. Windows down, yelling out, you religious nuts, get out of the way. And as he went around the curve, you could hear the squealing of brakes, then a huge splash. The one preacher turns to the other and he says, do you think we ought to change our signs to read Bridge Out? Isn't it amazing to think about the end is coming? And the end will bring with it a judgment day. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew writer said, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. There's no option there. It's real clear. It's very plain to see and to believe. And the important thing is that we live this life so that we're ready for death and that judgment that follows. Last Sunday morning, we studied about steadfastness. Remember Revelation 2 and 10, Be thou faithful unto death. Why is that so important? Because right after death, we will experience a judgment. And that judgment, as we've just had so capably read for us, is a day where everyone that's ever lived did you notice there in the reading that all nations will stand before Him? The six billion plus that are alive today, those that will live until the judgment of the Lord, those that have already lived on this earth, everyone will gather before the Lord as He's on His throne. 
and they will be divided. That's what judgment means. The sheep will be divided, those that are righteous on his right side, and the goats will be divided, those that are wicked on his left side. The sheep will hear that they are blessed of the Father and prepare for his kingdom. But we also read later in that same text of Matthew 25 that those that will not hear those words will hear the fact that they have been cursed and that they should prepare for the devil and his angels. If that is so simple, and it is, why are not more people living in view of Judgment Day? Could it be that Satan has caused so many among our neighbors and our community to believe a lie? Look with me, if you will, to John the 8th chapter. In John the 8th chapter, I'd like to scan a few verses before we read verse 44. In John 8 and 31 and 32, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are My disciples indeed. You shall know the truth. Now this is an important theme in this paragraph. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, in the following verse, they declare that they're descendants of Abraham. And as we, in a few minutes, we're going to go to Romans 1 and Romans 2. And especially in Romans 2, we see again the Jews declaring that they must have special privileges because they are descendants of Abraham. And so it's here that they declare because they're descendants of Abraham, they've never been in bondage. Why would you say the truth has set us free if we've never been in bondage? Now, isn't that amazing how we can believe lies? Friends, they knew the Scriptures as well as we know the Scriptures of the Old Testament. They knew that their people had been in bondage. You remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One was Joseph. Joseph was sold into Egypt as a slave. And then his people eventually served as 400 years in bondage in Egypt. It's ridiculous for them to say we've never been in bondage. And the very time they're saying this... They're being ruled by the Roman Empire. So in a sense, they're in a mild type of bondage even as they're saying this. But yet, they have what they want to believe to be true. And so Jesus reveals to them in 41, you do the deeds of your father. And in 42, he says, if God were your father, you would love me. And then he reveals their father in 44. You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. The word murder means manslayer. Satan, from the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he was slaying their souls. In other words, what is spiritual death? Sin brings about spiritual death. It separates us from God. Satan was there in the Garden of Eden to slay the souls of mankind. And now notice the rest of this. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Now when he speaks of lies here in this verse, notice what he does. He says when Satan stands, he doesn't stand in truth. When he speaks, he doesn't speak the truth. And his resources, he never pulls back and draws from the resources of truth. He always stands in a lie, he always speaks a lie, and he always draws from the resources of lie. 
Everything Satan tells you and I is deceptive. It's lies. It's not true. Now, let's think for just a moment of judgment. Why is it that so many are not prepared, perhaps do not even care? Could it be that they've been listening to the father of lies instead of to God? In 1872, there was a diamond craze throughout the borders of Colorado and Wyoming. There were two individuals, last names of Arnold's and Slack. These two individuals made their way into San Francisco with a bag of diamonds. They really didn't speak openly about this a lot, but they let the banker know it as they rented a place in a vault for them to keep their huge bag of diamonds They even showed the banker and some others there their diamonds. And several investors became aware of these diamonds. As a matter of fact, it was some of the wealthiest people in America in that day. Tiffany. You remember of Tiffany Glass? He was one of the ones that heard about this. Several of these investors got together with these two men, and and the men were reluctant to talk about the diamond field that they had found and that they had purchased. But finally their arm could be twisted and they told about this diamond field and as a matter of fact the men as they pressured them to sell them this field they declared they couldn't sell their diamond field but finally they agreed upon a price in 1870s of $660,000. They allowed the man to board the men to board the train with them. They took them out west. They got off the train and they walked And just as the men had described, there was a field there that had diamonds. Diamonds laying on top of the ground also had rubies, emeralds, and sapphires. The investors were beside themselves. They paid for the field and they went back and and it became a very public thing as everyone talked about the huge diamond mine. As a matter of fact, the mountain in the background is still called Diamond Mountain even today because of what took place there. The geologist for the U.S. government, Clarence King, heard about this tremendous story. He decided to take a train ride out west also. When he arrived, just as he had heard, diamonds were laying on top of the ground. He began to examine them. Some of them were half polished. That wasn't right. He also noticed the sapphires and the emeralds and the rubies laying around. He went on out west and talked to the investors and told them that they'd been scammed. That the diamond field was a hoax. You don't find diamonds that are half polished. Upon further investigation, they found out that Arnold and Slack had gone over to Europe and they had bought $35,000 of seconds in gems, mostly from Africa. You see, they had come back and they had salted that field with all of these jewels just so they could sell it for an inflated price. It's considered one of the biggest hoaxes in U.S. history. The reason I chose that story to illustrate this is for this point. A lot of the time when we think of hoax and scams... We think of 
of quick talkers that take advantage of the young or, or the feeble-minded, maybe those that are elderly to the point that their mind is deteriorating. Or we think of someone that comes on the doorstep and they make a quick spill and before you even know what has happened, it's all done. And you say, well, they were just a quick talker. Friends, these individuals went to some of the best minds and the most able bodies of their day. They even gave them many days to think about it as they even took them out on a train ride and showed it to them in person. You see the point? If we miss the truth, it doesn't matter who we are. The only thing we have left to believe is a lie. Those investors missed the truth. The only thing left was a lie. Throughout today, this morning and this evening, and this is contrary to the Sunday bulletin, what it says for the PM lesson, but we're going to take some time to look through some passages in Romans 1 and Romans 2 and just a little bit in Romans 3. And let's read some truth about the day of judgment. And let's see the lie that Satan would tell us in response to that truth. And if you will, be turning to Romans, the first chapter. In Romans, the first chapter, we have a great revelation that's been given to us. In Romans... The first chapter, if you'll notice back in verse 16, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, think about that the Scriptures tells us that the gospel has given us the power to save. It's given us the instruction to save. In just a moment, we're going to work our way to the last verse here in verse 32. And we're going to see through the lie that Satan would give to us. As Satan oftentimes will give us the lie to lead us to believe, God would not condemn me. Do you believe that? Well, you see, I'm, I'm just a good neighbor. I'm just a good person. And I'm sure God would condemn murderers or rapists or, or maybe people like that, but God would never condemn me. When you look at the statistics when surveys are taken, how many people believe in God? The majority of people in America believe in God. You ask them how many believe in heaven, and still the overwhelming majority believe in heaven, but just a few less that believe in God. But then you ask how many believe in hell, and the numbers drop drastically. What does that tell us? That tells us that there's a lot of people out there that do not believe that God would ever condemn a person. Let's see what God says. Friends, if God says that no one would ever be cast into hell, we need to believe that no one would ever be cast into hell. But if God says that individuals will be cast into hell, I need to believe the truth about what God says. Now, if there were no hell, if there were no eternal damnation, there'd be no reason for verse 16 that tells us that the gospel gives us the power to save. We'd be saved from what? You couldn't be lost. So we know immediately that the idea that it's impossible to be condemned, we know that's wrong from verse 16. 17 tells us that the righteousness of God is revealed. We find out what is right as we read the Scriptures. 18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, we see that those individuals in 21 who knew God, 
moved all the way from God to the point of idolatry and eventually even to homosexuality. This brings us to a list of sins in 29. Look with me in 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. That's a pretty long list of sin there. How does God feel about individuals that practice? This is their life. They practice these sins. Let's see what God says in 32 as it relates to judgment. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, Paul's right there. Do you realize God can only judge righteous judgment. God can't look over to one person and say, hey, I know I shouldn't do this, but I think the world of you, and I'm not going to judge you righteously. I'm going to give you special favor. But everybody else over here, I'm going to judge with righteous judgment. God can't do that. God can only judge righteous judgment. Now, we'll touch on another lie later on this evening that's very closely related to that. But notice what he says in 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Death is mentioned 22 times in the book of Romans, more than any other book in the New Testament. 18 times it's talking about our death as it relates spiritually. Only four times does he use death as it relates to Jesus Christ's death. Friends, I must believe that if I allow sin, I live a life of practicing sin to separate me from God, God says, I deserve to die spiritually. Romans 3 and 23 tell us for all sin, and Romans 6 and 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Speaking about spiritual death, speaking about eternal separation from God. A second lie that Satan would like for us to believe is he would like for us to believe that the excuses we give on earth, that God will believe those excuses on the day of judgment. Look at verse 1 in the second chapter. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, that word inexcusable, it, it literally means incapable of being excused. Isn't it amazing? And as we introduce this point, be turning, if you will, to Luke, the 14th chapter. Isn't it amazing how often we give excuses? And have you noticed that when we use an excuse that other people believe, they buy into it, they understand it, we tend to pull that excuse out real often. And have you noticed that the more often we pull that excuse out, the more likely we are to start believing that excuse? Mark Twain, it said that someone came to borrow his axe. And he said, no, you can't borrow my axe. I'm eating soup for supper tonight. They challenged him. What does me borrowing your axe have to do with you eating soup for supper tonight? He says, oh, it doesn't. But if you're making excuses, one excuse is as good as another. Now think about that. 
When we tell someone, I, I'm just not feeling very well. Now that could be true or it could be an excuse. But if it is an excuse and it is bought, wow, that was great. That excuse worked. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm too busy. And they bought it. Wow, that was great. That excuse really worked. How many times do we have to say, I just don't feel well, or, or I'm just too busy, or whatever the other thousand excuses might be before we start believing them? Now, here's the question. If others believe it, and if, God believe, if others believe it and we believe it, will we be able to stand on the day of judgment and explain to God why we did not do His will and use the same excuse? If everybody else has been believing it all of our life, will God believe it? Do you think Jesus would ever touch on something like that? Absolutely. When it's something that some of us deal with every day, there would be some in this auditorium that we are tempted or either do use false excuses every day. We tell ourselves why we're not going to do God's will, and we use an excuse just to make our conscience feel better when the truth is there is no merit to that excuse. Jesus tells a parable. Now, of course, since he's telling a parable, he gets to make it up so that it fits man perfectly. He tells about a parable of a banquet. Now, in that day and time, a banquet would have a list of those who were invited, and they would be invited well ahead of time, many days. And so you can imagine a person working for the master would go from house to house to the list, fulfill the invitation list. And so everyone said, we'll be there, we'll be there, we'll be there. Well then, now this is very different from us today in our culture. In their culture, when it came time that evening for the banquet, they would send that same servant back out again to say, it's time. They didn't just look at their watch and say, be there at seven. They would wait for that second invitation that would say, it's time, come, all things are ready. Jesus tells a parable about this taking place. And at the end of 17, they were making that next invitation. Come, for all things are now ready. And notice 18. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. What do you think these excuses might involve? If you've never thought about this from this angle, you're probably going to be amazed at how things do not change over 2,000 years. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Now, he must have believed that it was a good enough excuse. Now, the question is, Maybe the servant thought that that was a pretty good excuse, but will the master think that's a good excuse? Let's read on. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife. Now notice, he thinks that's good enough right there. He doesn't even have to ask to be excused. He just demands excuse. Notice what he says, therefore I cannot come. Property. How many people buy property and never walk across it? I know it's been done, but that's not a rule of thumb. Sounds like an excuse to me. Think about machinery, oxen. Has to do with making a living, your career, 
your livelihood financially. How many big-time farmers are going to go out, and any guy that's going to go out and buy five yoke of oxen at one time was running a pretty big farm? And how many guys are going to go out and not even test them until after they bought them? Sounds like another excuse. After all, for both of these, if the land and the oxen had already been bought, what's wrong with just going ahead to the banquet this evening and testing them out the next morning? You see, the point is, it's all excuses. And then the third one, relationships. Friends, do you realize how many individuals do not serve God, they do not prepare for the day of judgment, and their excuses will almost always fall in the line of some possessions they own, or something about their work, or something about their family. Now, naturally... There may be reasons about our possessions and about our work and about our family, but the Lord here is dealing with excuses. And it's really ironic when you think of Christians. God has given them their possessions. He's blessed them with careers, and He's given them a family, and they use those things as excuses instead of blessings. Let's read the rest of this. So that servant came. This is 21, still in Luke 14. That servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go quickly into the streets and lanes and the cities and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded, and still there's room. Pause here for a moment. Will he now say, Okay, if there's room... Let's go back and let's invite those people one more time that's been making excuses. You see, here's where the Lord drives home the point, and we could almost say with no pity. Look at the rest of this. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full or filled. For I say to you, that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my supper. He says, I want you to go out and I want you to fill my house. Lord, who do you want me to fill my house with? Now notice in that culture, in that society, the lowest class of people were the lame, the blind, those that would live out in the highways and the hedges. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to invite them. Lord, there's still more room, all right? You keep going to the ones that don't make excuses. But Lord, there's more room. Do not go back to the ones who have been making excuses. Friends, whatever excuse that I have been giving myself, perhaps even others, for why I'm not living a faithful life to God and and why I'm not going to be prepared on the day of judgment. I need to realize this this morning with eyes wide open. God does not believe that excuse now, and He will not believe it on the day of judgment. God only knows the truth, and He only judges based on the truth. Look back, if you will, with me in Romans, the second chapter. We read there, verse 2, 
And as we read verse, I'm sorry, the second chapter, verse 1. And as we read there, I'd like for you to notice again in the middle of the verse, and, and we've got to wrap this up quick here. Notice where he says, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. A third lie that we kind of tell ourselves is the fact that, well, God's going to let me judge. In other words, it's like this. If I judge myself to be faithful, and if I'm comfortable with myself, if I'm confident with myself, I'm going to be saved. And, and we see pictures and glimpses of this in the Scriptures. In Romans, the 12th chapter, we see an individuals that they would not confess Jesus Christ. And so they were walking away from Jesus because they didn't want to hear His words. And finally, in John, the 12th chapter, in verse 48, He told those individuals, you can walk away from My words right now. But He says, you just rest assured, those words will judge you in the last days. You see, I'm not going to be my judge, and you're not going to be your judge. And we can look around on this earth, and we can say, well, I'm doing better than so-and-so. I must be doing okay. It's like the prayer between the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee thought he was doing so good because he could compare himself to others who were not very religious. There's coming a day of judgment, and Jesus Christ will be the judge, and His words will be the standard. It's like an open book test. You remember back to your days in school where you thought it was going to be a real hard test, and then when the test time came, the teacher said, by the way, you can use your book. Yes. I can do all right when I can look and see what it's all about, the questions and the answers. That's what the Lord says judgment is. It's an open book. You got the book right now. You can prepare for it right now. Lord says, I'm going to be the judge, but I'll give you the test right now. And that's what we're living right now. We're living a test. Who's our God going to be? Are we going to live for God or are we going to live for self? This morning, let's never believe a lie. This morning, this morning let's do not stand with Satan, the father of lies. This morning, let's stand with Jesus. Let's believe the fact that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. And the Lord will save, but for those who do not want to be saved, they will be condemned. Let's believe the truth and stop believing our own excuses. And let's recognize that the Lord will be the judge, not us. If you haven't been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, or if you have, but yet you need to come back to Him this morning, we'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you or, or to see you baptized into Christ. This morning, let's make sure that we all leave here, that we all leave here living the truth, avoiding the lies, not giving excuses. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, I want to warn you. During this invitation song, Satan will give you some excuses. He'll flash them through your mind. And you'll have to decide if you believe a lie. Let's all believe the truth. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.